the hindrances, those forces in the mind which are so challenging for us in our sitting and mindfulness practice. Tonight I bring tidings of good news, that there are other forces also at work in our minds and hearts which become allies or resources on our journey, the liberating forces that are also present in our consciousness and that I suspect each one of you in some form, however briefly, has touched in these four days. So I will talk about them tonight. They're called the seven factors of awakening in the Pali Suttas. I will talk about them tonight But first, I'd like to begin with a story. This is a a story written by a wonderful poet named Naomi Shihab Nye. Some of you may be familiar with her work. This is uh, not exactly a poem, but a piece of writing she wrote called Wandering Around an Albuquerque Airport Terminal. After learning my flight was detained four hours, I heard the announcement. If anyone in the vicinity of gate 4A understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Gate 4A was my own gate. I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor, wailing loudly. Help, said the flight service person. Talk to her. What is her problem? We told her the flight was going to be four hours late, and she did this. I put my arm around her and spoke to her haltingly in Arabic. The minute she heard any words she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought our flight had been canceled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for major medical treatment the following day. I said, no, no, we're fine, we're fine. You'll get there just late. Who is picking you up? Let's call him and tell him. We called her son and I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother till we got on the plane and I would ride next to her. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons, just for the fun of it. (laughs) Then we called my dad, and he and she spoke for a while in Arabic (laughs) and found out, of course, that they had ten shared friends. (laughs) Then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her? This all took up about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling about her life, answering questions. She had pulled a sack of homemade mamul cookies out of her bag, little powdered sugar crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts. She was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina the traveler from China, the, the couple from California, the lovely woman from Laredo. We were all covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. And then the airline broke out the free beverages from huge coolers, non-alcoholic, and the two little girls for our flight, one African-American, one Mexican-American, ran around serving us all apple juice and lemonade, and they were covered with powdered sugar, too. And I noticed my new best friend. By now we were holding hands. She had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. Such an old country traveling tradition. Always carry a plant. Always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around that gate of late and weary ones and thought, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person in this gate had seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all these people. 
This can still happen anywhere. In the shared world, people have gifts to offer each other. Not just cookies, but gifts of empathy, understanding, caring, trust, encouragement. Sometimes the Buddha, there are many different kinds of statues of the Buddha, but there are some seated statues and some standing statues where the Buddha is, his hand is like this. It's called, this is called a mudra, a gesture. And this gesture means no fear. It was a signal in the days of the Buddha when somebody was approaching, you know, the, to show your hand meant I'm, I'm harmless. You need not fear me. I have no weaponry, no fear. I think that is a beautiful mudra for our times because there is so much fear in the world. And so we have said at times that this practice is about teaching us how to live our lives in a kinder, less harming, more open-hearted way wise way. So tonight I want to talk about those qualities of consciousness that aren't just for the meditation hall, but that can certainly be taken with us as we leave here and go back into the world. I think you have begun to sense that this practice, even though challenging, is not about in indulging in our suffering. It's not about making you suffer or making you feel miserable, although at times you may have felt that here, but rather about diminishing the strength of these habits of mind which lead to suffering, which lead to fear, to alienation, to separation. Greed is one such habit. Aversion is another as well as the rest of the hindrances which Mark spoke about last night, as well as many others. There are many negative forces in the mind that we can look to and say, yes, this is suffering. But our meditation practice, our spiritual awakening, is equally concerned with strengthening the habits of mind which lead to wisdom, which lead to compassion, which lead to joy and liberation. What is the primary habit of mind which does this? It is mindfulness. Mindfulness activates the beautiful qualities of consciousness, qualities such as calmness, well-being, patience, compassion, joy, Stillness, peace, courage. Mindfulness activates these in in us. And this is especially true in the conducive conditions of being on retreat. These qualities in the last some days have probably begun to peek through even in the littlest moments in your practice. When they come, it is good to recognize them. Sometimes we're so busy and so fixated on our what's wrong or the pain or the frustration or the restlessness that we fail to notice this other, these other qualities that are beginning to show themselves. It is good to recognize them and allow ourselves to know them. By doing so, they become stronger. They are the wholesome qualities of consciousness which are our birthright, but which get obscured, like the clouds obscuring the sun. 
They get obscured by the habits of the hindrances. These beautiful qualities of consciousness are as much a part of the curriculum of being human as is suffering. So it is good, I think, to know about them. These beautiful qualities are manifestations, you could say, of our true nature, of our Buddha nature. Just as the seed of a rose has within it all the liberating qualities, has within it all the characteristics of the mature rose plant, so too does our consciousness contain within it all the liberating qualities of heart and mind. This was the view of the Buddha, that inherent in our being are these beautiful qualities of consciousness. Just as the seed of the rose grows and develops when given the right nutrients and conditions of soil and light and water, so too do the beautiful qualities of our consciousness grow in the fertile soil of mindfulness itself. And especially so in the conditions of retreat, where your primary and continuous task is to be present with your experience. Howie mentioned this morning the eternal now of the present moment. It is only in the eternal now that we find these liberating qualities of our true nature. Only by being present are they found. Or as the Las Vegas casino sign says, you must be present to win. Tonight I want to talk about some of these qualities. As I said, in the Pali Suttas they are called the seven factors of awakening. What are they? They are the qualities of effort, investigation, rapture, concentration, tranquility, equanimity, and mindfulness. They are allies in our journey, resources which become activated as we practice. Knowing about them, hearing about them, beginning to recognize them in our experience gives us an impetus, an inspiration It shows us where mindfulness leads. This is not a practice just about struggle and hardship. It's also a practice about liberation, about happiness, about peace, about joy. So first I'd like to describe these seven factors by way of metaphor. If we were to set out on a long and adventurous journey into a land we'd never been, we might want to take with us a group of resourceful people. For example, we might want to have someone along willing to work hard and persist in a steady way through the difficult times. Someone who doesn't give up but perseveres. This is the factor of effort. We might want to have someone good at creative problem-solving, someone who can intuit the truth of the situation and see its relevance to the present. This is the factor of investigation. We might want to have someone really easygoing, good-humored, optimistic, confident, happy, We might have to want someone like that along. This is the quality of rapture. We might want to have someone good at keeping the focus of the journey on track, not getting too distracted into lengthy detours or side trips. Someone single-minded in their attention. This is the quality of concentration. 
We might want to, su- to have someone able to see calmly and clearly, someone to be non-reactive in harmony with everyone else. This is the quality of tranquility. We might want someone able to see the bigger picture and stay balanced, steady, and unperturbed in the face of unexpected difficulties. This is the quality of equanimity. And finally, we'd want a leader who could oversee everyone in a fair and friendly way, someone non-judgmental, very patient, with clear comprehension of what is needed in any given situation. This is mindfulness. In this imaginary cast of characters, not only is each quality a valuable resource in itself, but there is a synergy in how they act together and how they balance each other. Effort and tranquility keep each other in balance, as do rapture and equanimity, concentration and investigation. They are all needed for there to be synergy in the way they interact. If one were to be left out, all the rest would be affected. This quality of mindfulness is what calls them forth. All come into play the minute mindfulness is present. Just as all the qualities of a flower are present in the seed, the color, the size, the shape, the fragrance, all six factors are present, although perhaps in very nascent form in every moment of mindfulness. So in knowing what they are, we can begin to recognize them when they appear and appreciate their significance. Just as the hindrances represent obstructive forces in the mind, the seven factors represent the liberating forces in consciousness. Some years ago, there was a lot of talk in the field of sports about being in the zone. Remember that? A state of optimal functioning in which mind and body are exquisitely attuned. We could say that the seven factors put us in the zone spiritually. What this means is that awakening is not a completely random event based on wishful thinking, but is universally the result of activating, cultivating, and balancing specific qualities of consciousness. And this is in our power to do. There are three arousing factors, effort, investigation, and rapture, and three stabilizing factors, concentration, tranquility, and equanimity. The seventh factor being mindfulness. So I want to talk about each factor, beginning with the arousing factors and beginning with effort. Effort in the context of meditation is the wholehearted effort to be present. It does take effort, doesn't it? Not the same kind of effort that you need to, oh, mm, play football or uh, change a tire or, uh, I don't know, run a marathon perhaps, but it does take a kind of effort. And the kind of effort that's required is not, has to be not too tight, not too loose. And this takes a while to learn. Many of you have talked about this in interviews. 
Often in learning something new, we over effort. We think more effort is required than is actually the case. I like to remember when it was that I learned to drive and when it was all so new. The idea of, of course, I was, I was learning on a shift car, so that made it a little bit more challenging. But I remember like oversteering or throwing my foot on the brakes, you know, just like I had to, thinking I had to do a lot more, make more effort than was actually acquired. Or we might take that to mean we might experience that in trying to follow the breath. How much effort is actually needed to follow the breath, to be with the breath? How much effort is needed to be with pain, to keep turning the attention toward what is happening? Too much effort in meditation leads to what? Frustration, struggle, weariness, discouragement, tension. We get into a battle with ourselves. Too little effort, what? No connection. No connection to what is happening. We're just off in fantasy land. We're checked out. I learned a lot about too much effort at my first Buddhist meditation retreat, which was many years ago, and it was a Zen retreat. And it was a retreat that I went on in a, as a kind of lark. I had no idea really what I was getting into. And because I didn't know what I was getting into, I got way in over my head. I arrived at Mount Baldy Zen Center with a friend and um, discovered to my confusion and horror that the schedule was very, 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 very rigorous. You think this schedule is rigorous? Well, we were getting up at three in the morning and there was no choice about it. There wasn't like, oh, I think I'll sleep in this morning. No, 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 no. There was nothing like that. You were up and going whether you wanted to be or not. And we would go in a group. Everything we did all day was in a group. There was no free time except a half an hour, I think, after lunch. Um, We went till 10 at night. And it was very, very rigorous. Up at three, dashed to the chanting hall, half an hour of chanting vigorously in Japanese. That really does wake you up. and then dash to the to the Roshi for the first of four four meetings. You, you see the teacher four times a day. <laughs> and it's a pretty brief meeting because he asks you an inscrutable question that I never had the answer to. So I was always in and out of there really fast. But it was very challenging because I didn't understand why he was asking me this question. I had no idea what was expected of me. And it was complete humiliation every time I went in um, and failed, 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 kept failing at everything, everything I failed. And um, it was just way more, the effort that was required was just way more than I had the capacity to do. So that was a lesson. My, my main effort on that seven-day retreat was just to survive. And I did manage to survive, although my arms were sort of permanently like this for some days after the retreat, because you couldn't move during the sitting and you had to sit exactly like this. So I, I needless to say, did not continue with that, <laughs> with that tradition. I wandered into the Vipassana world and found this suited my nature a little bit more, this, this freedom to come and go and find my own pace. But it didn't take too long. Some years later, I found myself filled with interest and curiosity about the practice, really loving the practice, really feeling this great passion to do practice. And so I would go to long retreats, and I found myself 
making the, the kind of effort that had been required at the Zen retreat, but with an entirely different motivation because I was connecting with what was going on. I was deeply interested in what was happening in my practice. And so it was an effortless kind of effort. We discover effort as we go. Balanced effort is the key. Not too tight, not too loose. Effort in the service of truth, in the service of that which interests you. What do you want to know? What do you want to find out? One of my teachers often tells the story about his 10 years of very intensive practice. Whenever he had a profound insight, he didn't rest on his laurels. Instead, he, something, he said something inside him always said to him, keep going, keep going. And that's really good advice. No matter what comes up in our practice, in your practice, not to give up. Keep applying a balanced effort. The second quality is investigation. Investigation, the quality of interest in discovering for oneself what is true. The Buddha said over and over, come see for yourself if what I say is true. Don't take my word for it. This is not a philosophy. This is not a theory. This is not dogma. Not something you need to believe. Check it out for yourself. Try it out in your own experience. And I think this is very a great invitation and a one that is kind of rare in our world to be invited to trust our own experience of something to try something and see for ourselves whether or not it is true it's also challenging because we know what we like and what we don't like this from bhikkhu bodhi Real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things inwardly, but of changing our perspective on them so that they no longer bind us. When we understand the nature of desire, when we investigate closely with keen attention, clinging falls away by itself. In this investigation, our concern must not be with what is pleasant, but with what is true. We have to be prepared and willing to discover what is true, even at the cost of our comfort. Real security always lies on the side of truth, not on the side of comfort. So we are asked to find what is true, but we're also asked to open to the truth, whether we like what we're finding or whether we find it difficult or challenging. But it is this love of truth which is the spark of investigation. And I imagine that many of you have felt that at some point. Like there is some, some love of truth that you are in pursuit of, that, that is the spark for your own quality of uh, turning your attention inward, looking deeper into your experience. We turn towards our experience with curiosity, with kindness, meeting our experience directly, seeing what it is for ourselves, discovering what is here. Joseph Campbell said, we need to let go of the life we planned in order to discover the life that is waiting for us. This practice is is about just that, letting go of our ideas, our expectations, our beliefs about what should be happening, 
and instead discovering what is happening, what is unfolding moment to moment. That's the continual invitation. The third arousing factor is that of what is called rapture or joy. It is present in those moments in our practice where there's a quality of ease, lightness of being, gratitude, playfulness. It's kind of Teflon mind. It's the mind where nothing sticks, where nothing that was bothering us seems to be bothering us anymore, where things just kind of, you know, flow off easily. We don't get stuck to things. And it is not dependent on outside conditions. It's not the kind of rapture that's, oh, I'm so happy because we're having Mexican food at lunch. But rather, it's a result of the cultivation of concentration. With concentration comes this quality of ease, lightness, rapture. You may feel it at times in the body as a kind of lightness, like you're just going to, your whole body is like a helium balloon that's just going to float away. It's an unobstructed flow of energy. I remember a very striking example of this uh, occurred for me when I, when I went to India one time to visit a, a very wonderful uh, teacher. And before I met the teacher, I, I was just in agony being in India. And India is very challenging for, for Westerners. And, you know, like the story Mark told, or just, you know, the, the, the chaos of it all and the, the, the sense of, of just, you know, too much happening that is completely not understandable. And, and you know, it's just, it's very, it's in your face. You're, you're constantly like something in your face that you'd rather not have in your face constantly in India. So I was having this kind of struggle, you know, and then we went to see this teacher and began to spend time with him. And I noticed over the days we were with him that after a while, none of it bothered me. You know, bring it on, bring it on, the corpses, the beggars, the filth, the flies, the whatever. None of it was bothering me after some time. It was like the quality of rapture had become activated by being in this very, uh, this very big presence of this teacher. So these are the arousing factors, effort, investigation, and rapture. And they need to be grounded and balanced by the stabilizing factors of concentration, tranquility, and equanimity. Concentration what you have been practicing here, especially on the first few days when we emphasized focusing on the breath, is a result of two qualities called vitaka and vachara. Vitaka is the aiming of our attention towards the breath (coughs) or towards the chosen object. And it's not just aiming the attention, but then sustaining the attention over time on the breath. So even even though the breath is moving, it is that ability to aim and sustain our attention on the breathing so that over time it develops this quality of concentration, this quality of um, making it the exclusive object of our attention. When we do that, the hindrances go into abeyance. Have you noticed? When you're very concentrated, the hindrances aren't around. They become less burdensome. Concentration is a power of mind which can be used in different ways. 
Sometimes concentration is used to develop what are called the jhanas, which are states of uh, highly developed states of concentration, of absorption into the divine realms of happiness, peace, and equanimity. This is called jhana practice, and it is available in this tradition of practice. What we are doing here is not that. This is called vipassana or insight practice. In this practice, we cultivate enough concentration to penetrate beneath the surface appearance of things, to see the underlying reality of things as they are. And we've talked about that, that when we come into the present, we are actually coming in contact with things as they are, with reality, not as we fear them to be, not as we want them to be, not what our story tells us, but the actuality of things as they are. And that means seeing the truth of constant change, the truth of emptiness, the truth that this unfolding of experience is not owned by anyone. It is not a definition of who we are. So this is the value of concentration on an insight meditation retreat. One teacher says it gives us like x-ray vision. It allows us to see through the apparent solidity and permanence and seriousness and ownership of, of things that um, are conventionally held to be real and true. Concentration allows us to see through that to the reality. Then there is the quality of tranquility. Think of a place that you've been in nature or in the world where the quality of tranquility is present. We've all experienced it at times in our lives where there's this incredible sense of stillness and depth. Sometimes it can happen by looking at a pond that is very still. We just sense the the depth of the pond where the waters are settled and maybe it's very clear, you can see to the bottom. Or maybe it's a time when, sometimes this time of night, it can get very tranquil. And the birds are, are going to sleep, it gets quieter, and the, it's like all of nature is kind of poised in this stillness before the sun settles. Um, it is something that we can't, none of these are factors that we can think about. We can't think our way to tranquility. It's more that we attune ourselves to the quality. It's like becoming a tuning fork and tuning in to uh, a situation where there's a feeling of tranquility. Certainly, um, this is not a quality that's very uh, present in Western materialistic world, which thrives more on speed and busyness and managing a lot of things. But in the East, where these practices come from, the, the qualities of tra- the quality of tranquility is, is often appears in the art, in the arts of Japan or China, Um, there are scenes or evocations of this quality of tranquility. Um, The Japanese temple gardens are a wonderful example of of that. If you've ever been in in a Japanese garden where there's this very purposeful cultivation of the quality of tranquility. I go to an acupuncturist in the city sometime who is Chinese and 
um, very highly educated man from mainland China, and he loves poetry. And often he will uh, recite, as I'm lying there with <laughs> with needles in, he will recite to me poetry from the Tang Dynasty that he, he'll, you know, like say it in Chinese, and I don't speak Chinese, but I mean, that doesn't stop him. He just loves poetry. So he, he says it, and, and then he'll translate it for me. And often he, they're poems about scenes of tranquility, you know, birds flying and mist and water and trees. And it's a love in the culture of this quality of tranquility. And then we come to the quality of equanimity, the quality of balance and spaciousness. Balance and spaciousness of mind, where we see all things as being equal. Sometimes there's a view that equanimity means indifference or being somehow detached, but that's not actually accurate because equanimity, when we, when we discover it in our practice, is actually imbued with a lot of warmth and compassion. But it is also that uh, very clear seeing of things as they are and the, the capacity to hold dualities, to hold opposites, to hold paradoxes, pleasure and pain, yes and no, good and bad. We can, we have the, the capacity to hold all the, all the opposites. How we might experience this in our practice is through that sense of calmness that nothing can disturb or great sense of patience Tolerance, spaciousness is a very good word for equanimity. In our lives, it is learning to handle things with balance, finding the middle way through extremes. From the third Zen patriarch, if you wish to know the truth, Hold to no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. The disease of the mind that we all seem to have. Setting up what we like against what we dislike. Sometimes the image given of equanimity is of the mountain. It's sometimes a useful image to use in your sitting practice to feel the quality of sitting like a mountain. What that means is that you are stable. You're here. You're completely present. You're not going anywhere. You can't be pushed over. But at the same time, there's a sense of great openness to whatever comes, just like a mountain is open to whatever weather blows through, unmoved, unchanging. So all of these factors, as I said earlier, they work together synergistically. Effort and tranquility keep each other in balance. Rapture and equanimity keep each other in balance, as do concentration and investigation. They're all different qualities of consciousness that we all experience and will continue to experience in our practice as we unfold in this, on this journey. And the factor which brings them all into play is this quality of mindfulness. Mindfulness. So what is mindfulness? What have you discovered about mindfulness? What qualities 
does it have? When you are being mindful, what qualities are present? First of all, we could say that mindfulness is non-judging. It's not for or against anything. If there's a if there's a feeling of judging your experience, it's not mindfulness that's doing it. It's your mind. It's your attitude that's coloring your experience of mindfulness. Mindfulness itself is simply a reflection, is reflecting what is present, like a mirror. You get up in the morning and you look at yourself in the mirror. Now, you might not like what you see, but it's not the mirror that is judging, right? Who's judging? We are. So mindfulness is like the mirror that we shine on our actual experience. It is sensitive. It is open. It allows whatever comes. A mirror doesn't say, oh, no, you can't put that in front of me. I'm not going to reflect that. No. Like mindfulness, it, it's open to whatever shows up in your body, in your mind, in your heart. It has no opinion for or against. Mindfulness is preconceptual. It occurs before any thought arises. If I ring this bell, notice what is present before any thought arises. Did you have to think about it in order to know sound, to hear the bell? Did you have to have a thought about it before it registered? Or was there just a moment of pure hearing? Did you see that? Yeah. That is mindfulness. That immediate, direct knowing of our experience. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sensing. All known directly, immediately. So quickly does our thought come in that we, we get confused. But that moment before any thought arises is the moment of pure mindfulness. To practice mindfulness is to understand what Suzuki Roshi meant when he said enlightenment is not a state you reach sometime in a far-off future. But it is here, right now. He talked about enlightenment in every moment of mindfulness. In every moment when we are mindful, when we are present, when we are completely there. There is no craving in such a moment. There's no resistance, no confusion. Just as when we heard the bell, no craving, no resistance, no confusion. Just what is. So attune yourself to that immediacy and that direct knowing that mindfulness offers. Out of that, all of these factors of effort, rapture, investigation, concentration, tranquility, equanimity, they all begin to get stronger out of that quality of that direct experience, that direct knowing that purity of mindfulness. And these become the liberating forces in our practice. These become, as I said earlier, the allies that we can call on in our journey. They strengthen our capacity to be present, not only here, but in our lives our capacity to be intimate with all the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of life. 
So I'd like to close with a little poem that kind of speaks to this. It's a poem by a, a Japanese Shikibu. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. I knew myself completely, no part left out. So thank you. Let's sit together for a moment. Thank you for your attention. We have about 40 minutes tonight for walking practice before our last sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate